0: lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson.
1: I've got a great show today. I've got Dr. Charles Garfield, who's a psychologist, a professor, a lecturer. He's the author of 13 books, including Our Wisdom Years, which we're going to get to talk about today. He's also the founder of the Shante Project, which has been recognized internationally, the work it did with the AIDS and the Cancer Service Organizations. For over 40 years, he's pioneered the development of healthcare and social service oriented volunteer organizations in a wide variety of settings. He was a clinical professor of psychology at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine at San Francisco for nearly four decades. He's lectured widely. He's addressed audiences that include a Clinton White House conference, the U.S. Olympic Committee, and head coaches of Olympic sports, and the leadership of Oklahoma City following the bombing of that city's federal building. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining me today.
0: Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our discussion.
1: Well, I know that this book is more important to you because it's more personal than the others that you've written. And when, you know, when you think about it, the global population that's aged 60 years and over now would numbered 962 million in 2017. And by 2050, that population is projected to reach nearly 2.1 billion. So certainly, the work that you've done, Uh, because I know that book is is written for people over 60. So talk to us about the book. Tell me what motivated you to write the book. Well,
0: simply put, what motivated me to write the book was I was getting older myself, and I realized that things were changing, that the priorities that I had when I was younger about being a success and climbing the ladder and doing all those things that have to do with achievement and performance, all of that was not so important to me anymore, and a new set of priorities were taking root, and I wanted to understand what was going on. So I started doing the research and interviewing all sorts of people who were from late 50s on over 100 to find out exactly what they were experiencing and whether it was the same as I was, uh, what I was going through, and it, it, in fact it was. I realized that there was a a new stage of life that was happening. It was not just a major uh, a, a transition of some sort, but it was an entire new stage of life, similar to the stage when we uh when we go from adolescence to adulthood, all those years ago when we were teenagers and became adults. Remember how significant that was and important that was? Well, this one is just as significant and just as important. And I decided to uh, to really take a look at it seriously.
1: Well, you know, and I think I'm sure you've heard the saying "65 is the new 45," because I hear that all the time, and I think that it, that it is, and I think that that's impacting us. And we live so much longer now, and it's not it used to be. You, you went to work, you retired at 62, you lived a few years, then you died. And the world doesn't work that way today, so I think that it's important for people out there to understand how to make that transition. What's the first step?
0: Well, the first step is to recognize, and I I wrote about this a lot in our wisdom years in the book. The first step is to realize that things are changing; that in fact, um, you're not the same person as you were before. That. Important new priorities and potentials are taking root, and it's important to take a look at uh, what those are. You know, there are all sorts of books for uh, child and baby care and how to deal with adolescence and how to deal with human development in adulthood, all these important uh, books on earlier stages of life. I decided to write this book on our wisdom years, on, on later life, because... It turns out that it's we have books on all sorts of other things, everything from how to play golf to fix your car to God knows what else. But there were not any books that I could find that really taught you how to negotiate the challenges of later life, how to actually make the best use of those years. And so I decided to go out and write one.
1: Well, and I think, you know, I have clients that want to retire, and they're concerned. You know, some of them think they haven't saved enough. Some of them haven't saved anything. But the whole way Social Security pays out now is changing. And I think people, there's some uneasiness and there's some worry just based around the transition. And I feel like that, you know, if makes it a lot easier if someone looks at it and says, okay, it's a process that you're going to go through.
0: Absolutely. You're saying it beautifully. Um, it is a process that you're going to go through. It can be a very positive process despite the fact that there are undeniable challenges. You mentioned some of them. Uh, you know, there may be financial challenges. There may be health challenges. Uh, There there may be challenges associated with later life, but there are challenges associated with every stage of life. Uh, Adolescence was no uh, walk in the park either, and uh, adulthood, the earlier stages of adulthood had their challenges. So later life has the same kind of challenge, different specifics, but also challenges in, in later life. Let's also remember that there are positive aspects to it. There, there are things that you can discover about yourself in later life that really make this one of the most fulfilling stages ever.
1: Well, you know, you bring up some really good points. And I think about it so different when you're, you're raising your your family and, and your kids are so heavily dependent upon you. And then you get to a different stage where your kids don't need you, but maybe your parents do.
0: Maybe your parents need you. Maybe in fact, maybe in fact, you're on your own. For the first time in a very long time, you may be on your own. You have time for yourself. Say you've retired. Say you're finished with your formal work life. You may have for the first time a chance to look at what, what do I really want to do? What do I want to contribute to the world? What do I want to do that's creative? What do I want to do that really helps me fulfill myself? All these questions that we take up in the book that uh, teaches people how to make the best use of this particular stage.
1: Well, you know, and I think how we fulfill ourselves is a really challenging question for a lot of people because we've lived a portion of our life trying to meet the expectations that have been set for us, whether they're professional expectations or our family's expectations, and all of a sudden we get to set our own expectations, and that can be thrilling, but at the same time a little scary.
0: Yeah, it can be. You know, you're 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 saying it beautifully. It may be the first time in somebody's entire life where they've not had to answer. the call of somebody else, that they're listening to their own inner wisdom, and they may not know how to do that. One of the great discoveries in this research was that reflection, simple reflection, was something that people do in later life and learn to do, can learn to do well in later life, that they may never have done before because they were looking outside themselves for other people's expectations. And now they're asking all of these internal questions. What is my soul calling me to do? Or what is my heart? Who is my heart calling me to be? Uh, all of these questions about how do I make the best use of this life? And it may be quite a while. The fastest growing segment of our population are centenarians, people over 100. So if you're 60, there's a chance you could live 40 more years. That's a huge block of time. There's no guarantee, of course, but even if you live to 80, that's 20 more years. That's a whole stage of life in itself. Uh, and it r- really, people drift into later life without a game plan, without a way of thinking about it intelligently, and that's what I set out to do when I wrote Our Wisdom Years.
1: Well, what I've seen in some, in some of my clients is that the older they've gotten, they've gotten more spiritual, or they're just tapping into that spiritual side a little bit more. Have you experienced that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, One of the questions that uh, I ask in the interview is, uh, now that you've entered your wisdom years, how is your relationship to God or the mystery or the eternal, how has that changed? And you find people who were atheists or humanists earlier in life suddenly developing at minimum a curiosity about what comes after life, life after life, what what is the meaning of god and and, and how do i conceive of god if i do it all and they they talk about transitions in their belief systems, changes in their belief systems they may not have believed, they may not have taken it all seriously. They may, have thought, may not have thought of themselves as spiritual in the least until later on, until they get older, until the question of mortality becomes important. Uh, you know, I think I talk in the book about death being an advisor. Your own death, your own personal death and the death of people close to you can be an advisor on how to live your life. We ask people to consider the question, if you only had X amount of time left, five years, ten years, one year even, how would you make use of that time? And you see people talking about spiritual concerns pretty frequently. Uh, They talk about um, not only things that they would do, but ways that they want to be, legacies that they want to leave, life review that they want to do, their own lives and reviewing those lives. So you see people talk a lot more. You're quite right about spiritual matters.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because when you say legacy, I think to a lot of people that legacy is is numbers. It's a financial amount. It's, you know, my kids are taken care of. My grandkids are taken care of. But I don't think that's the legacy you're talking about.
0: No, it's not at all. uh, You know, people talk about leaving uh, some kind of financial assistance to their children or grandchildren, but that was not really what they talked about at length. They talked about what they were leaving behind that they were most proud of, values that they were teaching. Uh, The number of older people, grandparents especially, who talked about writing legacy letters to their grandchildren about the most important lessons they learned in their life, the values that were most important to them. People talked about beauty and justice and service and love and kindness and all sorts of things that they wanted to leave behind so that their children and grandchildren understood what, what they learned in the long arc of their life, what they learned that was most important to them. And they considered that a real gift.
1: That is a real gift, and what a way to connect with different generations long after we're gone. And I don't have the answers as to what happens after we're gone, but to be able to for a grandchild to feel connected to me by reading a letter or, or hearing stories of things that I did, I think that that puts a big smile on my face. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it- It
0: puts a smile on mine as well. You know, one of the things I did when my mother was getting on in years, and she obviously was not going to be alive very much longer, I wanted to see what gift I could give her that amounted to a kind of legacy. So I went, uh, with her permission, I went through all her old pictures, and I made photo albums of the arc of her life, the important people in her life, And she was able to narrate the story of her life for me and for my brother and for anybody else who was interested. Uh, And she she would review those pictures, those photo albums, and she would be the happiest I ever saw her was when she was telling the story of her life and the lessons she had learned. So whether you write a legacy letter or whether it comes in the form of a photo album, uh, those things that you're leaving behind that are... That are the sum and substance of all that you've learned turned out to be very important
1: and I think it's a journey life is a journey and it's our life experiences that really give us that insight and really help us to, to stop and be able to reflect
0: well I think that that's true and you know uh, when you when you talk about reflection and you talk about life being a journey um, I ask the question what do you what do you most value now that you've reached this age? And they talked about, people talked about two things more than anything else. They talked about love, people they loved and who loved them, and the love they had given and received during the long arc of their life. And then they talked about work they were most proud of, work that made a difference in the world, not just a bunch of money that they made, but in fact, Work that served the greater good, that uh, that helped people, that in some ways made life better for other people. Love and work turned out to be very, very important values as people got older.
1: That's interesting. And it makes sense because a big part of our identity is our work. And my big part of my identity is I help people, and that makes me proud. So that makes a lot of sense. You told yeah. me an interesting Go ahead.
0: You're, you're lucky because you're in a position. I'm in a position where our work allows us to help people in, in a very obvious way. But some people, you know, you, you're, you're you're working in a in a retail outlet. You you're doing work that that may or may not be obvious in terms of its assistance to other people. But if you dig in a little more deeply, you find out that. Uh, that there is some contribution to the greater good that you're offering. But in some cases, uh, you know, I talked to people who were school teachers and uh, people who did work that obviously was in the human services area. Those people had a much easier time of it because their work was obviously a contribution to the greater good. And they were very happy about that. It mattered more to them as they got older.
1: Well, I think, you know, too, when you know that you're help, like as you said, when you know that you're helping people and you get positive feedback, it's much easier to recognize and appreciate it. And it's much harder. I When I think of what we've been through in the last few months, I think of those people that have been on the front lines helping us all to get groceries and to get mail delivered and just, you know, the most basic things. But without those things... Our life would have come to, could have come to a standstill.
0: They're the heroes. They're the heroes of the current time, and uh, I find myself saying thank you to all sorts of people who I, who I might not even have noticed before, um, because of what they do, because of how they contribute at the front line of the, the uh, epidemic, the, the pandemic that we're facing right now. Uh, so their contributions are really obvious and. As I said, I, I regard them as the heroes of the current era.
1: I do too, and and you make a good point. I am so my level of gratitude has increased tremendously in the last few months, and I am more thankful. I'm thankful for everybody that I can say good morning to in the morning. Everybody I can interact with, I'm thankful.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's understandable given the current time. We're all. Feeling a kind of oh i don't know tension, obviously, because of the the seriousness of the situation that we're facing, but also the gratitude in knowing that we're all in this together there's an awareness that if my end of the boat sinks, so does yours. we're all in this together right now, uh, and it's you know, you see people uh wearing masks. To protect themselves, but also to protect other people, whether they're conscious of it or not, whether they think in those terms or not, um, or social distancing, or the other requirements of the current time period that are really important to do. Uh, You find people being thankful for all—I walk down the street and I see people coming toward me, and they're obviously— they got, they got their mask on, and I see people with gloves more frequently than ever before. And I feel a kind of gratitude for the fact that they're paying attention, that they're taking care of their lives, of course, but they're also taking care of the rest of us.
1: And as you said, we're all in it together. We're going to stand together and get through it together. And hopefully we'll, we will we will come out of it. And when we do... We will take what we've learned and apply that to our own legacy and what how what we can share with other people. You know, when we first talked, you told me the most interesting story, and I hope you're you're pretty open, but I hope you're would take joy in sharing it with the rest of the population and that's your dad's story.
0: Yeah, he uh My father was an interesting man. My parents met in an acting class after high school. And my father was a really good actor. He was the leading man in a series of plays, and that's how my parents met, actually. Uh, And he wanted to be an actor more than anything else in the world, but it was during the Great Depression, which was a very intense period, like the intense period we're going through now. And being an actor really wasn't a good way to put food on the table, so he decided he'd better get another career that uh, that helped him support his family. So he, he went into sales. He spent 40 years as a salesman. Within two or three weeks of his retirement, he joined an acting troupe, became the leading man in a series of plays, was a really talented actor still after all those years. I watched him in a few plays, and uh, uh, he was he was awfully good. And I remember asking him, and this was a very poignant uh, conversation we had, I said, did you ever think of acting during all those years you were a salesman? He said, I thought about it every day. I thought about it every day, and I realized that my life would not be complete unless I became an actor and and had a chance to really do the kinds of things that I most wanted to do with my life. So I I asked people in the interviews, for the book, I ask people questions about, uh, what have you always wanted to do that might have been, that might still be incomplete, that you may have started and stopped because it wasn't practical, or you may not have even started it. What do you most want to do? And if they don't know to help them think through what that might be. And it doesn't have to be anything dramatic, like being an actor. It can be, uh, I, the number of people who said to me, uh, I've always liked to work with my hands. I've always liked to make things. The one man who was a, a very successful investment banker decided after he retired that he would make early American furniture. Complete shift. But he said, I always wanted to make things that would last forever and make them with my hands and be proud of the fact that I that I did so. And he it became so successful that he's now selling his creations and doing quite well with it uh, but it's not the sales of it that he's concerned about what he's most concerned about is what he called finding good homes for my creation
1: that touches my heart you know when I, and when i listened to you when you told me about your dad i thought he did what he had to do and of course of course The Depression were different times, and then then we had World War II, and we didn't have the freedom to explore as much as we do today. But the fact that that lived on in his heart, and he pursued it, what a great level of fulfillment to have.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, it was interesting. There's a story I often tell about my mother also who had a similar experience. She always wanted to get her doctorate. But she grew up you know in the same era my father did, and there was no way she she graduated from college, which was a major achievement in her time. But she had her go and raise a family and do the kinds of things, take care of me and my brother, and do the kinds of things that uh, uh, raising a family entails. When she retired, she was out here in California, where we are now, and uh She went to the Berkeley campus, the University of California at Berkeley campus, and decided to sit in on classes, to audit classes. She wrote out a whole curriculum for herself. That was her, what she called her doctoral curriculum. And she sat in, just showed up, didn't even get permission, showed up, took those classes, didn't have to do papers or take any tests, which she didn't want to do. And I asked her the question, nobody minded that you were just showing up and sitting in on the classes? And she said, nobody throws out a little old lady. They were happy <laughs> to have me. And she completed all of the coursework that she wanted to complete to get what she called my very own doctorate. And uh, I, I thought that was an amazing accomplishment on her part. It took her several years to do, but she did it. She would show up on campus every day and just go to the class that she wanted to attend.
1: That is an amazing story. And did you know there are certain states, and Texas is one of them, that now after you reach an age, and I think it's 65, that you can audit any college class, um, which means that you can sit in and – actually experienced the class and, and the whole learning process. And that in itself, I'm so glad you told that story because, you know, that makes you realize that that we can do, there's so many things that we can do if we just decide we're going to do it and we be brave. I mean, I can see this little old lady, you know, and she's right. Who's going to kick a little old lady out? Um but that, yeah, they were that, happy to have her. She, she was one of the most diligent students. She participated
0: in class, and she did all sorts of things. And I think Texas, the people in Texas are smart for uh, allowing folks over 65 to audit classes uh, and, and to make that well-known. I bet that all sorts of people will make use of that.
1: And I bet you California does, too. I know there are several states that do, Um but it, I think it's it opens some doors for all of us, and that we, as we move forward, 65 is the new 45, and we've got to we've got to know where we can go. I mean, I have clients that say, "I'm I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid I'd be bored," you know um i just so they need to know that there are things that you can do you can be you can do what you want to do you can grow from it you can learn from it and you know when we come back we're going to take a break in a minute but when we come back you have spent the last 40 years helping people to understand that they can help others by volunteering And you mentioned to me that even through the COVID-19, you've been able to arrange volunteers to go out and grocery shop or walk the dog or, you know, give them a a phone call or get on a Zoom meeting to help people feel connected. And the fact that, you know, that they can express that compassion through their volunteering, I just, I, I think is amazing. Because I've always wondered, you know, can compassion be taught? Or is it something that you either have it or you don't? You know, it goes back to the nurture or nature question. Um, so many questions around it. But when we come back from break, I want you to answer that question. You know, can, I'd be,
0: compa- I'd be glad to.
1: Yeah, can compassion be taught? Because it certainly makes you stop and wonder.
0: Back after these messages. It's you never
2: heard. Have you ever had a really bad haircut from a barber or a stylist? I mean so bad it looks like you cut your own hair. What's a word for a person who does cut their own hair? An autotonsorialist. And there's a word for a person who has never had a haircut he would be called an acercycomic. How many hairs are there in your head anyway? If you're blonde, about 150,000. Brunette, 100,000. Or redhead, 60,000. One out of every 14 women in the United States is a natural blonde. Some people avoid getting their hair cut because they're afraid they'll get not padded. That's what it's called when your hair is cut too short. Why do shampoo instructions say, Lather, Rinse, Repeat? If you did this, would you ever be able to stop?
0: It's Marching Never Heard.
2: I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app Too Funny for Word. it's Words.
0: It's Marching Never Heard.
2: We all know that alarm clocks were invented for people who don't have kids. But before the alarm clock was invented, how did people wake up in time for work? Previous to the alarm clock gaining popularity, people in Britain and Ireland might have been awakened each morning by a knocker-up. A knocker-up was a person that was paid a few pence a week to wake up slugabeds and clinomaniacs. Those are people who like to sleep in. Knocker-ups used pea shooters to roust folks who were oversleeping and long bamboo sticks to reach windows on higher floors. It was the responsibility of the knocker-up to not leave the window until they were sure their client didn't go back to sleep, even if they had metutilepia, otherwise known as waking up on the wrong side of the bed. It's
0: Words You Never heard.
2: I'm Carolyn Davidson and Words You Never Heard has been brought to you by the Bariatric Surgery Center of Dallas.
0: We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson.
1: I'm back with Dr. Garfield, and he's written so many books. The last one was Our Wisdom Years, and I think one of the things that he's used through all of his books and his work is compassion. So tell us, Charles, can compassion be taught?
0: It can certainly be taught. We live in
1: a society, however, which values a different
0: set of priorities, looking out for number one, what I call radical individualism, uh, people who are really focused on themselves and their own needs. Uh, I'm talking about earlier in life, as people climb the ladder and try to be a success, they focus so much on their own needs. Uh, what we find later in life is that there's a natural kind of evolution where people start thinking less about themselves and more about the contribution that they've made to the greater good. And it's at that point where compassion starts becoming more normal. It becomes normalized. Compassion becomes something that we want, that it, that, uh, that becomes the kind of response that we want to make in the world, uh, that we want to offer to other people in the world. So the, your, your wonderful question about nature versus nurture, can it be taught or is it you know, inborn. I think it, the, the the evidence is pretty clear that when given permission, and when it's modeled well, people are can, most people can be naturally compassionate. Some more than others. If you grew up in a, a family where compassion was obvious, of course you'll you learn it earlier. You learn it uh, as a child. Uh, you know there there was a a series of studies done on kindergarten kids and you find them taking care of each other. You find kindergarten kids being naturally compassionate. It's only later as adults that we learn how to focus on ourselves and our own needs. So I think the bottom line is certainly compassion can be taught.
1: So it sounds like that that's part of the transition into our wisdom years.
0: It is. Um, it, It is part of the transition. We as I said earlier when we were talking about love and work uh the work that people were most proud of was work that made a contribution to the greater good made a contribution to the world not just their own welfare but the welfare of others and that's where compassion comes in and it becomes it becomes a very normal response um it's uh it, it people I like to I like to think that people become their best selves, that they, they operate on the better angels of their nature, on their higher values when they get older, it becomes more obvious. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying or minimizing the fact that there are challenges associated with aging, and we talk about that in the book as well. But don't forget the fact that there is the blossoming of something wonderful happening in the lives of many people when they start reflecting, when they start doing what we write about in an entire chapter called life review. When you review your life and you realize what were the most important lessons of your life, you find that uh, contributing to the greater good turns out to be something that people value a great deal. And compassion is the core value.
1: So when you, you know, think about life review, do you encourage people to journal about what they've learned from life?
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, journaling, whether you've ever done it before or not, can be a way of externalizing your internal world, your values, your thoughts, your reflections, your introspection. Uh, it's a way of getting out on paper and then reading it later to see, to learn from it. Uh, I encourage people to do something that I think about often as automatic writing. Just write. Don't edit. Don't think about what you're writing. Don't read it. Just write. Write all the things. Write of, write responses to a few key questions, which which I think are important. Questions like, what are, what are you most grateful for in your life? Or, what do you regret most, and what did you learn from those regrets? Or... one that people seem to like a lot, what are the three most important events in your life and what did you learn from those events? You know, it's a a challenge to if you've lived a certain number of years to come up with three of the most important events. Another question that's interesting is what do you want to pass on to younger generations from your own wisdom and experience? Two more, but just briefly, who would you like to forgive most in your life and why? And it may be yourself. Who would you most like to forgive and why? And again, it could be yourself. Self-forgiveness is important. And then the last one, now that you've entered your wisdom years, how is your relationship to God or the eternal? How has that changed, if at all? Uh, So those questions, you, you see people fill up They'll, they'll fill up a whole journal with responses to those questions.
1: I bet they can. I mean, just a the, just the question around forgiveness, because what I have found with a lot of my clients, you have to consider my client base. I work with a lot of depressed, a lot of anxiety, but they have a harder time forgiving themselves than they do anybody else.
0: Absolutely, and what I would suggest is to- for people to write a forgiveness letter to yourself that includes the observation the important observation that you did the best you could considering who you were at the time and what you knew at the time you couldn't have done it any other way you can't hold yourself accountable for uh... what you did then by the standards of what you know now you did the best you could considering who you were at the time and what you knew at the time and. Write in the letter what you've learned from those regrets that you'll never do again, that you'll never repeat again. You want to allow people the opportunity to lay the burden down. I've worked a lot with people at the end of life, people who are dying. I spent years at the Cancer Research Institute at the University of California Medical School. And one of the saddest things is when people talk about all the regrets they have and all the, the situations where they would love to forgive themselves but are struggling to do so, don't wait till the end. You don't have to wait till the end. You can do it much earlier. You can lay that burden down. Forgiving does not mean forgetting. You may still remember. In fact, it, it's wise that you remember so you don't repeat the, the mistake. Uh, but lay the burden down, don't take it to the end.
1: Well, I find I've had a couple of clients that absolutely could not forgive themselves, and I think part of it was that they did not want to own the actions that they did. So, if I don't own it, if I don't, you know, really admit that the, my behavior was wrong, then I can't. I don't have anything to forgive myself for. Have you seen people struggle with that?
0: Yeah, I have. I have, and I would ask the question. If if there was if I was faced with such a situation, I would ask the question to myself. I wonder what he or she is getting out of not forgiving themselves. What are they getting out of it? If you if you see all behavior is motivated, what is the motivation behind not forgiving yourself? And I you know, I would wonder what they're getting out of it. It no no easy answers. You have to sometimes work hard, as you, as you know from your own work. Uh, you sometimes have to work pretty hard to get it. The, the basic reasons, the rock bottom reasons for people choosing a certain attitude, but uh, I would, uh, I would, I would really wonder what they get out of not forgiving themselves.
1: That's a good question. You know, the more we talk about it, it, it's a process that we go through. When do you think that that transition starts? I mean, for some people, maybe it is sixty, but for others, does it start fifty? I don't know, forty-five. It
0: starts earlier. That, that's a that's a very wise uh, question of the, <laughs> that you just asked. Uh, it turns out that the, the old midlife crisis that we used to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, that happens when people are 35 or 40 or 45, in that mid-range, uh, people start asking the very same questions that later become powerful motivators in, in our wisdom years. They have the first inclinations where all of this starts, can frequently be at midlife. Uh, so if people at 35 or 40 are asking these questions, don't be surprised. Uh, they often they they can't follow up on it because they're still in the middle of their adult years. They're still trying to get ahead and, you know, raise a family on one side or uh, develop a career or climb the ladder or be a success, achieve a lot. So they, they sometimes have to repress those uh, questions, but they can come up early. The number of people who have have read the book, who have read our wisdom years, who are a lot younger than I ever would have guessed, people in their 40s write to me and they talk to me about how important the book was because it made clear that some of the questions they were asking themselves were normal, that it wasn't some, some lack of motivation on their part or some some fault of theirs, but rather a normal developmental process that they were going through.
1: Well, do you think that self-awareness plays a role in this? Because I think that I have clients that are extremely aware of what's going on with them themselves, and I could see them reflecting more easily. And I have clients that their level of self-awareness is pretty close to zero how do you how do you deal with that how do you help them create a higher level of self-awareness
0: well interestingly you, you, you're quite right that people run the whole gamut from being very self-aware and very introspective and very reflective to the reverse where it's almost zero where almost all of their attention is externally directed and they're not self-reflective at all uh, there are many, many exercises in the book, including the six questions I mentioned earlier, uh, where I help people, sometimes for the very first time in their entire lives, reflect on their own motivations, on their own desires, on their own, the future that they most want for themselves. But uh, introspection and reflection and self awareness can be taught. But for some people, uh, they, they grew up, learning to focus their attention externally on all sorts of external factors and they never once learned how to do it so a lot of the exercises in the book uh and I'm, I'm glad i included as many as i did um they're they're sometimes easy to state but challenging when you uh when you really get into it and exciting in many ways uh i get I get some wonderful feedback on people's responses to those exercises because it helps them increase their their level of self awareness
1: Can you share one of those exercises with us?
0: Yeah, absolutely uh, you know it, it, I, I'd go back to the questions I raised earlier. I would ask people a simple question, just one: What are you most grateful for in your life and and see how they respond to that. See how they go through a review of their lives and they think sometimes for the very first time about gratitude about what they're most grateful for Uh, or uh, one that we talked about earlier with regard to legacy what what three things would you like to pass on to younger generations from your own wisdom and experience and it may be the first time they ever thought of themselves as having wisdom they may never even thought about it before Uh, so if you ask poignant questions, if you ask questions that really get at the heart of uh, developing self self-awareness, people get excited. They get excited. You find them getting excited about learning that they they can understand themselves better. Self-understanding and self-awareness are, are real gifts if you can encourage people to develop them.
1: Do you see people struggle going through the process. I mean, I'd like to think, okay, I'm going to, you know, it's easy. I'm just going to do it. But that's not what I've seen in my practice. I see a lot of struggle. What do you see?
0: Well, I see people struggling, but you have to remember that your, your practice is a self-selected group that people who came for assistance. So they're Good already point. struggling. They're already struggling by definition. Um, yeah. Some of this can be a challenge. I'm not I would never say that uh, our wisdom years are all a walk in the park uh, that there are there are certainly challenges in understanding things like regret and forgiveness, uh, things that that can be uh, difficult to tackle, but there are lessons associated with those things that can be awfully important.
1: What's your favorite lesson if if I were to read the book and have one takeaway? What do you think the most important takeaway from the book is?
0: Understand the most important takeaway from the book would be to understand that the two most powerful motivators for people in later life are love and work. Make make sure that those things are central for you, that you really focus on people you love and who love you, the love that you've given and received in the long arc of your life the love that exists in your life right now, and then work, the work that you're most proud of because of its contribution to the greater good, work that you're proud of because of the contribution that you made. Love and work turn out to be the the, the quintessential most important lessons
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I say a similar message, but I say it in a much simpler way. And that is, I honestly believe people need three things. One, people need something to do. Two, people need something to love. And three, people need something to look forward to. And I really. I I mean, I really do believe that that. it can be pretty basic and pretty simple, particularly yeah, you know, to help us get through the, the hard times.
0: Interestingly, in the, in the book, we talk about teaching people how to develop an, a future, to, to look out five years and ask yourself the question, how do you most want to live this next five years so that you're most fulfilled? That's, that's very similar to your question of something to look forward to. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you want to carve out the next five years so that you 're happiest and most fulfilled and leave you with a feeling of of gratitude for your own investment of energy uh, yeah yeah your your three questions are lovely.
1: Well thank you it's you know I think that we're all we've we've been going through some hard times for the last few months with the covid nineteen and you mentioned to me that you were able to get volunteers to help other people during this time and I think that I know it ties back to the work that you did with the Shanti project, but I think that that is amazing to be able because this is the scariest time I think most of us have ever been in
0: yeah because we're all vulnerable we're all in a situation where we're potentially vulnerable to a deadly virus and uh, you would think that in a time like this starting uh, a program you know we've been uh, shanti project has been running for 46 years taking care of people first with cancer and then with AIDS but now with COVID-19 you would think that when we put out a call for volunteers that people would be too afraid to volunteer that's not what's happening what's happening is we have more volunteers than we know what to do with we have more volunteers than we have clients uh that when we ask people to be available so that they can talk on the phone or on Skype or Zoom or some other some other uh, way assisted by technology uh, to people who have the disease who are struggling with it um, to get shop for groceries and medications, to walk pets, to to simply say hello from uh, from a distance at the at a doorway. Uh, those kinds of things turn out to be really important to folks who are struggling. So uh, our new program that takes care of people with COVID nineteen is uh, has, has been quite successful. I'm really gratified that the response has been. What it is, we find people in later life, who are in their wisdom years, actually respond very well to the notion of volunteering, using what knowledge they have to volunteer for nonprofit organizations, and to make that wisdom of theirs, the talents that they've developed, available to other people. No, no longer thinking so much uh, at all about making money from it, uh, but rather
1: uh,
0: offering it as a gift.
1: So if, if there are people out there in the audience that are thinking, oh, I could use some help. I could, you know, I could really use some help. How do they find what resources are available?
0: Well, you know, there, there are volunteer associations in every city and every location in the country. Um, you know, volunteer services are available. It depends entirely on what you want to volunteer for, If you know. First, the the prior question is, is there a situation that really moves you? It may be something that you've lived through yourself with a parent or a sibling or a child. Is there something that really moves you that you'd like to volunteer for? Uh, I have a, a couple of friends who were very successful in their careers but always loved animals. They always loved animals, and when they retired, they volunteered for the uh, SPCA, the, uh, they they volunteer for various animal organizations, animal-focused organizations. Uh, it can be all sorts of things. There's a, you know, the whole the volunteer segment in our country is what I call our unacknowledged workforce. It is a huge percentage of our workforce is done on a volunteer basis. Without that volunteer contribution, we would. We'd be hard pressed to exist as a society because the professional community does not have. There aren't enough people with enough hours to do the to meet the need. Uh, volunteerism turns out to be an extremely important contribution, and I've focused on that my efforts on that for the last 46 years now.
1: Well, you know, I've seen a, a website volley dot org, and you can go in and it's you can put your interest, you can put your location, and it will actually show you all kinds of volunteer opportunities. And I think that for you know people that are going to starting to go through that transition, starting to go into those wisdom years, maybe that's a way to kind of stick your toe in the water and see how it feels. I think that's
0: great. I think it's great. If you, if you don't have any idea of what you want to, uh, invest your energies and talents in, I think it's great to go to any, any, uh, website, any, uh, organization that allows you to think through what that contribution might be. What your volunteer contribution might be. There are all sorts of wonderful things out there that you can, that people can be doing.
1: There certainly are. In the last few minutes, let's just, you know, the, the, the book, Our Wisdom ears. I know that's available on Amazon. And I know that anybody that wants to learn more about you can just simply Google Charles Garfield. Is there any other way that if people want to reach out to you or learn more about you, is there any other things that they can do?
0: Yeah, there's a w- wonderful website. It's a very personal website that people can go to. They can learn about the book. They can learn about our work. They can, And it's very well put together. And the address is Charles Garfield, one word, charlesgarfield.com.
1: Oh, can't be much simpler than that, can it?
0: No, nope, I, I made it easy, and we get a lot of really good responses to the website.
1: Well, and you've got a lot of really good of information on the website because I've, I've, I've been there and you've got some good blogs. You've got all kinds of information. So I encourage people that are just starting to think about transition and change or volunteer or taking the next step forward or, gee, I'm getting old and I don't know what to do. I encourage all of those people to visit the website.
0: Well, absolutely. I'd encourage them to do that, too. And there are ways of uh, learning more about the book, too, uh, to learn about our wisdom years. and uh, There's a lot of good information at the website.
1: So going back to the book, we've, we've danced around it, we've danced with it, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. But is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel like, you know, that's something that everybody should know?
0: Well, I think... Uh, one of the things that is most important that we we ought to touch on, and we perhaps didn't do it enough is that there are the two models of aging that we have in this country are mm-hmm. the major models are both incomplete. That's why I wrote the book. One is what I call the decline and debilitation model, in other words, I'm wearing out, I'm ready for the glue factory. it's all over That's yep. not true at yep. all that's and
1: not the true
0: other. At all. And the other is, nothing's changed. I'm as good as I ever was. Nothing has changed at all. Ask anybody who's 75 whether they're as physically fit as they were when they were 35, and they'll laugh at you. So, of course, things have changed. But things have also gotten better in other ways, having to do with the things that we talked about, reflection and self-awareness and contribution and love and work. Um, So recognize the fact that in our wisdom years in the book we covered, A third model where people can learn about joy and fulfillment and resilience and no regrets.
1: I think that is a great message, you know, to leave people with because we need to look forward and we need to deal with the forgiveness, deal with the grief, deal with the regret and put wrap our head around how we're going to live with joy and be fulfilled. Not only have joy in our life but give joy to other people's life as well. And I think that the book offers many ideas. Everybody receives information differently. But I honestly can say I believe that anybody that picks up our wisdom ears will have a takeaway that they will use for themselves. Thank you so much, Charles. I appreciate you making time and spending time with me today.
0: My pleasure. I enjoyed it tremendously. of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify.